Welcome to World of DAS, a show for data enthusiasts. I'm your host, Warren Hoffman, CEO of SafeGraph. For more conversations, videos, and transcripts, visit safegraph.com slash podcasts. Hello, data nerds. My guest today is Cindy Cohen. Cindy is the executive director of the Electronic Frontier Foundation, or EFF. EFF is the biggest digital rights organization in the world. Cindy, welcome to World of DAS. Thank you. Now, there's this kind of fluid concept of privacy where people may be willing to trade privacy if they actually get some real benefit in return. Like maybe I'd be glad to share my private medical information if it got me better treatment, but I might not share my data if it got me better advertising. How do you think about these trade-offs? Well, I think that there's a certain set of things that ought to not be subject to trade-offs. I think that something like your basic medical information or other kind of personal information probably shouldn't be able to be contracted away all that easy because I don't think that's really fair. I think that the power differentials between individuals and companies and things make that pretty fundamentally unfair at a lot of levels. I think as long as people are given a clear choice and a clear view of the benefits, there's plenty of spaces where that's okay to do. I don't think that that's actually occurring in most of the places that we are concerned about at EFF. I think that idea I learned in law school about contracts is the idea that you have two powerful entities who negotiate with each other and have a meetings of the minds about the deal. And I don't think very many people in the digital world think that that's what happens in the click wrapped opt out. Got so you because we have these now. like privacy policies, which are 25,000 words or something, and no one can really follow them. How should we be doing them? Because they're adding all these words probably for some CYA purpose or something. I don't know if the, even the companies really want to add all those things, but what would be a better world that we could live in? Well, I think a better world is, again, there's a certain set of things. And frankly, some of them is stuff that SafeGraph does that I just don't think should be subject to collection in the first place, except in pretty narrow circumstances. And then everything else, it should be a really clear situation in which you agree to it. And I don't think that that's what's happening with a lot of things we're doing. I mean, if we just cleared out the low-hanging fruit, things like your ad ID and SDKs and other things that are tracking people with actually not a serious argument that that's actually consent by users, we do a lot. Then we get some harder questions at the top, but I think there's so much low-hanging fruit that doesn't even, in my opinion, pass the giggle test as an actual knowing decision by consumers or one in which they had any real power I don't think people are unaware of what they're clicking on. Some people are unaware, but I think a lot of other people feel like they don't have any power to say no either. And that's not a real choice either. If we they want the clear- service, like they want to do searches on the internet or something, you don't want to just opt exactly. out the internet or, okay. We need the internet to function in our lives right now. You're looking for a job, you're looking for a house, you're looking for a partner. It's optional only in the, it's your choice to sleep under a bridge That's not a real choice. And I don't think the law or society should pretend like that's the same thing as a contractual meeting of the minds. And if we could wipe out all that low-hanging fruit and then get to the hard questions, well, that would be kind of fun because some of them are difficult, but we're not even there. From the big tech perspective, like the way I see it is they're not necessarily anti-regulation. Like They often benefit the most from the regulation because it keeps other players out of the market and it kind of cements their monopolies. Like how should we design regulation to both protect consumers and promote competition? It's a really important point. And we've seen a lot of regulation, especially around privacy, really cement 
the power of the big companies. I think the GDPR has done that for things like hosting. It's made Amazon more powerful. For and Google's end. market share went up. Facebook's market share went up after GDPR. I think that's a really important thing. I appreciate the GDPR and the attempt to do it, but I do think we need to target regulation at creating competition. We need to target regulation at the kinds of things that really support the competition in this space. But we also just need baseline privacy protection. And I think that if we set the baseline and then we target for more competition, we'll end up in a better place. I think empowering users needs to be the central piece of all of this. And there's lots of things to look at that are used to try to block out competitors that we could come up with policy or legal solutions to. Speaking of GDPR, like these like cookie warnings that are on every site, do you think this has been a net positive for privacy or do you think it's actually been a net negative because it just gets people so used to just clicking yes on everything? Yeah, I'm not sure. You probably need social scientists to say the net net of all of this. I don't want to throw too many rocks at the GDPR because they actually did something. And I think that it did raise consumer awareness. I do think we all want a better world than just a whole bunch of cookie warnings. And we want better interfaces to make these decisions. I think there are still places where people can make informed choices about sharing data. And the initial interfaces were horrible. We're starting to see them get better. And some of that pressure is from the California law as well. So I think it is going to be iterative. We don't want to let the perfect be the enemy of the good. But I do think we're all now seeing that the GDPR approach wasn't the end game. It's a step along the way. One of the things I know that EFF advocates for a lot is interoperability. And that could be like standards, join keys. Safegraph's been interested in these different join keys as well. Like, How do we encourage companies to get on board with being more flexible when it comes to sharing data and driving innovation? I think that there's a story to be told there that it would be great for people to start telling. I mean, we've had this platform mentality for a long time on the money side of things, the VC side of things. I don't think it's actually the best financial argument, except for the winner-take-all strategy that we've seen in various sectors, I think has made a few people really rich, but it hasn't really grown what we'd really love to see, which is an ecosystem of different things. And I think interoperability is one of the ways that we can get there. So I think there's actually a business side argument to be made for interoperability that I don't think is being made very well right now. But I'm a civil liberties lawyer and a user protecting thing. And I think that the argument that users are better off if they have more options and that interoperability, especially we call it competitive compatibility or adversarial interoperability, the kind where you don't have to ask for permission, is historically one of the coolest things about the internet. And we've lost it and we need to get back that way. And then that way, you're really giving users a much better world in which you have to kind of swear off of the benefits of Facebook. Many people can't leave Facebook right now. I joke that Facebook doesn't have users. It has hostages at this point. That you could still use Facebook for the things you want to use it for, like talking to your grandma and seeing pictures of the kids and things like that, but also not to have to buy into the whole thing and to have other options for other things that you do in your life. Interoperability, the tech makes that 
possible, we need to just free up the barriers right now. And there are legal barriers as well as societal barriers right now that are stopping innovation other than the kind of limited innovation we're getting out of the tech giants right now. And sometimes there is this tension between privacy and interoperability. At least the big companies often cite privacy as a reason they can't be interoperable. Do you think it's just an excuse or do you think it's actually a legitimate attention? You're totally right that it is a big argument that the companies are making. We're going to have a test. I mean, the Digital Services Act in the EU is going to require interoperability and messaging. I wouldn't actually have picked messaging as the first one. Why not? Because it's more Because we already have end-to-end secure messaging, and I wouldn't want... There are forces, law enforcement forces around the world who are trying to get rid of end-to-end encryption, and I don't want them to use this as an argument to try to break end-to-end encryption, and I'm worried. If all of a sudden Telegram and Signal are interoperable with a less secure system, then you might be able to break it or something like that. Or That's right. And the way that the European law is written, it wouldn't reach Telegram or Signal. They're not big enough. They really are talking about the giants, but for WhatsApp, it would be a concern. But I think that it's a smokescreen a lot of the time. I think there are situations in which it's important and there are places where you have to be careful about it. We wrote a paper a while ago called Privacy Without Monopoly that our EFF technologists and one of our activists, Cory Doctorow, co-wrote, kind of trying to talk about this, that we can have privacy without having monopoly and talking about some of the pieces we need to get there. One of the things we need is comprehensive privacy law so that all the players in the field have to respect privacy and that that's enforceable and enforceable by you as somebody whose data is being sloshed around. We call that a private right of action. These kinds of pieces will work together to help build a safe platform for interoperability that doesn't create a race to the bottom on people's privacy, because that's a real risk. Again, I think it's overblown by the companies, but you can't dismiss it out of hand. We need to address it. Are you Excited about crypto as a potential solution or you know these Web3 things, or are you more wary about it? Because there's somewhat of an anti-privacy thing in general. If everything's on the blockchain and it's immutable and you can't move it, et cetera. I think in terms of decentralization, I appreciate the energy that the crypto community is bringing towards decentralization and their understanding about protecting encryption, for instance, is being centered to things. This is near and dear to my heart. I think there's a lot of grift in that world and it's causing a lot of people to not want to engage with it because of the amount of grift and Ponzi schemes and things like that that are happening there. And what EFF is trying to do is talk about the parts of decentralization that are really helpful to end users in society and really draw attention to those and be kind of a sane broker on the other side, on the cryptocurrency side. There are some good babies in that bathwater, and it's important to talk about them, but there's a lot of bathwater too. And we're really quite concerned that the distaste for a lot of the really bad behavior that's happening in the cryptocurrency space will lead right-thinking people to toss out a lot of the really good ideas about decentralized and in the blockchain. I mean, the blockchain is a really cool technology for having a permanent record. A permanent ledger is a useful thing. And I think that we're kind of hoping that the smoke clears at some point and we can talk about the useful part without getting caught into all the hype. But hasn't happened yet. I know EFF has been critical about a lot of data companies, including SafeGraph, where I work. And this audience, our world of DAS, there's a lot of CEOs of data companies that listen. What's your message to them? How should they be thinking differently about what they do? I do think that we're 
reaching a point where it's pretty clear that real-time location data tracking of individuals is dangerous. It's dangerous for society. It's dangerous for individuals. And it's especially obvious in the context of people who need reproductive help or the very, very many people who want to help people who need reproductive help. But I think that's just the latest in the problems that are caused by it. I really think that people ought to think about getting out of that business and getting into other businesses. It's bad. I think it's going to go away eventually. But even if it isn't, I don't think it's particularly ethical given the lack of controls about how this information is being used and will be used. That's especially the case if you're marketing to law enforcement, which has been one of our chief criticisms of SafeGraph and Veriset is that you're basically creating the dragnet society that the rest of us have to live in and doing it for a profit. And I just don't think it's a good look. I don't think it's ethical. I'm going to be really honest with you here. There's like four nouns of data. So there's data about people, there's data about places, there's data about companies or organizations, and there's data about products. Usually data is like probably 95% of data fits one of those four nouns. And I assume like the core thing that EFF cares about is data about people. That's the most sensitive data, right? That's the, how many bathrooms does the Starbucks down the street have? There's not a lot of privacy around that or something, or how much do they charge for a coffee or something like that? But it's really about a person. What is a person doing, et cetera? And then I assume there's some sort of level where if we're talking about an individual person, there's a high degree of scrutiny. If we're talking a collection of people like the census data, then there'd be what we're really worried about is that we could get down to an individual, but like something like the census, I would presume is something you would like. Well, yeah, but the census has very strict legal limits on how that information can be used and reused. And I do think you have to build- Sure, what are those- I'm not familiar. What's the legal remnants of how the census data can be reused? Or I thought it was available for any researcher or anybody in the world to use as they wish. I think there are limits about how certainly personally identifiable census data can be used. I mean, they've been working a lot on differential privacy. Yeah, yeah. It's a great, I think they do a great job. We know are involved in that. But to try to make sure that census data isn't used for law enforcement purposes, it isn't used for tracking communities. I think the thing where I would push back a little bit is that I do think that at least as a lot of companies, including SafeGraph, have interpreted location data, they're actually able to identify people. We know that just a couple data points of where you sleep and where you work can identify people or even less than that. We've seen law enforcement being perfectly willing to do geofence warrants where they get the identifiers of all the people. And it's not personally identifiers because it's your ad ID or some other identifier you've been assigned in a particular location and use that to try to prosecute people. So if you really care about dragnet surveillance, I think that the idea that location data is somehow different than personal data when the reason many, many uses of it are to try to track how people move is wrong. I also think that The idea that we only care about one person and we don't care about groups of people is wrong. We have a history of discrimination of people based on where they live, based on the color of their skin, based upon their religion. Groups of people are at risk from this. And that's why there was such an uproar with the app, the Muslim Call to Prayer, the Muslim apps that were making data available to- Sorry, just so I can make sure that our audience understands like the FF position. So would your position be the census- is okay or your position is the census is 
Because I generally think like the census is a good thing, but I could see an argument where saying, well, no, 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 we're going too far. We're putting too, obviously the census has things like race in there and they have a lot of income and they have lots of very, very sensitive related things. France, they don't even let you put race in the census because they think that you're going too far. How do you think about something like the census? Is this a good thing or is it too into somebody's privacy? I think the government collecting data in order to figure out how to run government in order to figure out how to allocate social supports is a useful reason. I don't know that that opens the door to all the commercial uses we're seeing now. Again, it's like McDonald's might use the census data to figure out where they should advertise or something. I'm sure that's a common use case or something. I think they do some of that, but I do think there are limits and there's specifically law enforcement limits, I believe, in how the census data can be used. I admit I don't go deep on census data, so I apologize. It's not something I've studied at length, but I'm not sure that it wins the argument at all for commercial uses. Governments have reasons. We have to decide what districts look like. We have to decide what our representation looks like. That's the main reason for the census to begin with, is to decide how the government divides up its citizens. That's a very different purpose than McDonald's trying to decide how many bathrooms they want to put in a thing. And I think we can draw reasonable lines between the two. Right now, it's just a free-for-all. To go back to your question, what do I think if we've got companies that are listening to this? I think that on the transparency side, there's a lot that companies should do. They should reveal what apps have their SDKs. I want to know, should I install the Starbucks app? Where's that data going? What are the SDKs? Who's using Bidstream? What Bidstream are you using? How are you doing it? We know these techniques, but the public is completely in the dark about what apps are the ones they should be concerned about if they're concerned about their location. EFF just came up with a set of things for people seeking reproductive help or people seeking to help them. That where we ultimately honestly had to tell people, maybe leave your phone at home. That's not the world any of us who care about digital rights want to live on. But the truth is, I can't honestly tell somebody who's seeking reproductive services what apps they should worry about and where that data is going, both on the commercial side and on the law enforcement side. And we know that law enforcement, SafeGraph sold to Illinois, SafeGraph did a thing with DC under COVID. Like It's not like these companies aren't selling to governments or even giving to governments in different contexts. That leaves us unable to tell people how to protect themselves when they're using their devices. That's a bad world. We shouldn't live in a world in which my best advice to people is maybe don't take your phone when you're seeking medical help. Presumably, a law enforcement official in a certain state that may have different laws or something. They can obviously get data from Google and Apple and Verizon and AT&T as well. It's also about the collection of the data, not just about the selling. Correct. Those are the guys that have the most data, the Google, the Apples, the telcos. Certainly. And we certainly have never, never said that they shouldn't be included in this regulation. I think that everybody else is doing it isn't a very good answer when you get pulled over by the cops speeding. And it's not a very good answer when you're trying to protect people's privacy. Of course, there are lots of people who are doing this, but I'm talking to a particular piece of that industry. And you need to 
come clean with the fact that you are putting people's lives at risk at this point with location data, the way that you're handling location data and everybody is. And the fact that other people are putting people's lives at risk as well is no way out and shouldn't be a way out. So what should you do? You should talk about where you're getting your data from. Why isn't that SDK data? What apps you have? who you've paid to give that data. Why isn't that available to users? Bitstream data, why isn't that available? Why don't we know which law enforcement you have contracts with? Why instead do you have contracts that limit what law enforcement can even say about using your data, including in FOIA requests and other place or criminal defense situations? This is the opposite of standing with users. It's absolutely standing either with law enforcement or even worse, gagging law enforcement itself or the government itself from telling people what's happening to their data. So I think that's all easy stuff. SafeGraph doesn't sell to law enforcement. We don't have any law enforcement contracts. We don't give data to law enforcement. I don't know. Is it a big thing? Like law enforcement buying a lot of data? Like are they buying individual data? Like I presume they can just get it with a warrant or whatever. Like What's the reason for them to go buy the data? It's a huge business. I don't have the numbers. It was just in a congressional hearing yesterday. It's a tremendous, it's in the billions Oh wow! business of law enforcement buying data. And I think that they like to buy these things because they can do things that they couldn't get a warrant for a lot more easily. They're free of all of the hard work we've done in the Fourth Amendment and privacy laws and the Constitution and laws goes out the window if they buy it. They can do whatever the hell they want once they buy it. So it just gives them a lot of ability to do things that would otherwise be illegal or not admissible if they're prosecuting. So I think there's a bunch of that that is happening, but it's a huge thing. How do you think these different societies should think about privacy? Like I know like in the Nordic countries, they make tax records public, but in the US, this would be like crazy to make a tax record public. How do you think these different cultures should navigate these different privacy things? I mean, I think there's space for different cultures to make different choices about what they think. I think in the United States, we're big fans of financial privacy and less so other kinds of privacy and other places kind of flip that around sometimes. I think there's lots of space for individual countries to innovate. I think there needs to be a baseline. I mean, I think privacy is a human right. I don't think it's okay for a country to just decide that they don't think there's any privacy, but there's spaces in there. So just like with freedom of expression, there's spaces to freedom of expression is a global phenomenon. Everybody around the world thinks of freedom of expression as a core value But we make different choices about what that means in particular cases. And I think privacy can be the same way. As long as we have a solid floor, we can make different decisions based on our countries, based on our communities. Going back to the aggregated data or being able to like query and use sensitive data, if researchers had access to Medicare data, for instance, like it could really improve a lot of lives, but obviously the data is super sensitive and it should be private. But do you think like there's initiatives like differential privacy, there's homomorphic encryption? Do you think there's a scenario where it could allow us both the benefit of this data and to protect our citizens? I think so. But we have to be serious about the privacy part of differential privacy. I mean, I really think that universities have IRBs and other things to try to evaluate the risk to individuals. It's an imperfect process, but I think that We need to continue to deploy things like that where we think about it on an individual basis. I like research, but research that's built on unethically collected data shouldn't be done. 
you can get into Holocaust examples really quickly here, but just because the data exists doesn't mean that you are absolved from thinking about whether it was collected ethically or not in deciding what to do. But if it was ethically collected and we can do things like differential privacy to begin to free up more for research, I think I'm all for that. Let's say like the IRS records, it's a treasure trove. We're talking about over 50 years of like a multi-generational longitudinal study of hundreds of millions of Americans. Of course, since the data is super sensitive, I think like only four researchers today have access to that data. They're writing like incredible papers on it, but I would love to see a world where 40,000 researchers have access to it. And I think it's possible to make sure that they could query the data without seeing the underlying data. Like, do you think that is not a good thing for the IRS to try to do because it's too risky? Or do you think like, actually it's something like they should be pushing to try to get more people in society to use the data? I think it's pretty hard to say in the abstract. I mean, I think all of us would like research to continue to benefit society. I don't know why it's limited to just a very small number of people, but it may be because it isn't all that possible to make it not dangerous for people. I just don't know. It's hard to say in the abstract whether they should be pushing for more or pushing for less. I think it really depends on what it is they want to do. And what's the benefit to society of the research? Well, I mean, almost certainly, like we know that there'd be a massive benefit for if we could have more researchers on understanding, mm-hmm. let's say, health policy or healthcare or health outcomes or oncology treatments and stuff like that. If we had better access to data, like the data is very, very weak today, but there's this risk of obviously this is a super sensitive. I don't want my medical records out there. So there's a super sensitive risk. My belief is that we can have our cake and eat it too. These are not mutually exclusive. They're mutually inclusive. We can protect privacy and give access to research and have an opportunity to solve our society's problems. But there is this tension. If you're worried about like anything going wrong, then everything slows down. It becomes this very, very hard thing because there could be a 0.01% possibility of somebody's data getting out there or something. And the more people that use it, the more possibility that is. So how do you think we should weigh that tension? I mean, we already do. HIPAA is a law that allows a lot of research. I guess the question I have for you is, do you think we've set the thing wrong now? Because it's not zero. There's plenty of research access to health data, for instance. It's very, very, very small. And I think ultimately, I think we have like much more of a moral obligation to make this data accessible, I believe. We can do it while protecting privacy completely by giving people the ability to query the data without ever seeing the underlying data. I love the fact that all these cities are opening up their data. There's data.New York and data.San Francisco and all these. I love that. I think that's great. But to me, we can do so much more to make society better. I guess I would push back a little bit. First of all, I think that it's certainly from the COVID location tracking example, there isn't a lot of evidence that the tracking had much to do with helping us with that problem. We spent a lot of energy on trying to do, say, device level tracking of people with COVID or even notification schemes or any of those. And it's just not very persuasive that that was worth the candle in terms of how much tracking we tried to do, how much we tried to do, and how much benefit we got as a society from it. So I would take a little more jaundiced eye and not just assume that if the data is available, it will always be used for good purposes and society will benefit. I'm in favor of research and science. I get that. But I think that we've been a little unquestioning at the idea that all 
big data analysis is always leading to better things and that all big data research is good. I think we need to be a lot more careful about that. I think we've seen a lot of negative consequences and a lot of stuff that just didn't bear it out. We've seen this in predictive policing, for instance, all over the place. The presumed benefits of things like- Like the ComStat stuff in New York? Yeah. I don't know anything about producing, but as a average citizen, I lived under the impression that that worked, that that was successful. So you're saying it wasn't successful. Well, I'm talking about predictive policing. I should switch over and think about my understanding about Comstat is it ended up directing police to do a lot of things that were not particularly useful, but that looked good on Comstat. Ah, okay. And that you end up creating this gamification inside of things for like how many tickets and how many things you do, which doesn't actually have as much to do with keeping people safe and ended up over-policing the places where the police knew that they had low-hanging fruit to do property crimes and under-enforcing the kinds of things that didn't make Comstat. So once you start tracking you create incentives towards the things you're tracking. Predictive policing is a different thing, which looked at what police did and then tried to make predictions that claimed to be about crime, but were really about predicting the police. And so again, it ended up with the police doubling down on the neighborhoods and the places where police already were, resulting in over-policing in some neighborhoods and under-policing in others. So I would just say that I wouldn't throw out all big data analysis as being useless, but I think that we need to get past the presumption that because there's a lot of data and because somebody wants to look at it, society will be better off. That's clearly not the case. And we have to look a lot more closely at what or why. So to me, in answer to your question, more research equals better. I don't think so. I think we need smarter research, more careful research. That might mean more, but I would not want us to get rid of the guardrails and limitations on the blind presumption that just because a researcher wants to ask a question or just because we're setting up something to track a whole lot of data, society is automatically going to be better for it. Because I think at this point in time, it's just not true. How do you think about this tension between safety versus progress? Back in the day in the 30s or something, we create the Golden Gate Bridge in a few years. And it's just this amazing, I know you live near there. It's like this amazing structure. And today we can't even create like an on-ramp to the Golden Gate Bridge. It probably takes like 4X the time just to create an on-ramp or something because there's a lot more safety, which is in some ways good. Like back in the day, you see these pictures of people hanging off the Golden Gate Bridge, right. like with no harness and stuff. Doesn't seem like the safest thing in the world. And of course, we want to protect the environment, want to protect animals, want to protect lots of other things, but that does come at a cost of a certain innovation. So how do you think society should draw the line? Like it's very hard to do things with atoms today. And whereas much easier to do, let's say in earlier in the 20th century with atoms, you could see a world where it's becoming more difficult to do things with bits as well. Where do you think that tension should work its way out? I mean, I wouldn't say that it's difficult to do things with bits right now. I think we have a dearth. We don't have nearly enough guardrails around data than we should. We have very, very few. And the ones that we do have are not very well enforced. So I think we're a long way from a place where we're hurting innovation through regulation in the digital space. In fact, I would argue the other way around that our lack of regulation has created the rise of the platforms who are themselves up hurdles. Monopolies are hurting innovation far more than regulation is hurting innovation in the digital space. So 
again, not all regulation is the same. To me, the kind of rules that we need to have are the kind of rules that support innovation and that support competition. Let me give you an example. In AT&T, when it was in charge of all of our phones, took the position that you couldn't plug anything else into the wall except for an AT&T phone. And it took regulation. It took the FCC and the Carter phone decision and a couple other decisions to say, that's ridiculous. Your safety argument isn't true. People should be able to plug other things into the phone line. And there is a very good argument that that's why we got the home internet. That's what we had. That's the kind of regulatory approach that I think is important. And so to me, it's not regulation versus non-regulation. It's are the rules that we're creating helping to foster the world we want to live in or not? And sometimes that might be yes to a rule. And sometimes that might be no to a rule. But we have to keep the goal in mind rather than is this a rule or not in mind. It's a much simpler world. It's a much simpler world to say, Government is bad. Private enterprise is good. So anything government does is bad. Anything private enterprise does is good. It's a very simple world, black and white worldview. But well, it's almost the opposite right now. It's like the real, the true regulators of the internet today are these large companies. It's Correct. not the governments. They are essentially the FTC, the FCC, all these three-letter agencies all rolled into one Correct. as an entity. I don't even know if they want to have that power. They would probably prefer if somebody took that off of their hands. Yeah, but they're pretty particular about how that would happen, right? They want somebody to take it off their hands, but still protect them. I think that you're right. I just think that shows the problem in the kind of binary thinking about this is that you need to have another power source to check the one power source. And if you've given too much power to especially the big monopolistic companies, The only other source that you can really put together is not the only, but one of the important ones is to have government say, look, AT&T, you have to let people plug other things into the wall. We're going to make you do that because we're a regulator and we can force you to do that in order to benefit all the rest of us. And I know that government bureaucracy can get in the way of progress sometimes, but no government bureaucracy can get in the way of progress sometimes too. And so you have to think beyond just the one or the other. In this hyperpartisan time that we live in, it seems like the only bipartisan thing is that big tech is too powerful. That seems very clear bipartisan on all sides of the aisle. It does seem like there's this very interesting, strange bedfellow folks who are coming together on this. I think that's right. Everybody hates the tech giants. The problem with that, and you know, in some ways that might be good in that it might be a space for regulation, smart regulation, because you have bipartisan support for it. The problem that we're seeing is that they tend to hate the platforms for very different reasons, in fact, opposed reasons. And so it makes very difficult to harness that anger into an actual law. There's a privacy law being debated in Congress right now that's bipartisan, but it's breaking. Maybe it'll get through, but it's really not based in the same set of factual concerns. And so it doesn't really have a core set of things that everybody can agree on about how we should go forward. So if you're a Republican, some Republicans are very upset because the platforms take down more, they think their perception, and it's actually not borne out. Like a free speech argument. Yeah, it's not borne out by the evidence, but their argument is that they're disproportionately targeted by the platforms. And on the left, people are concerned that too much hate is being put up. I mean, in some ways, they're talking 
past each other. They're both mad, but almost for diametrically opposed reasons. The Democrats are mad because they're not taking down hateful speech. And the Republicans are mad because some of that hateful speech is actually being taken down. It's hard to come to a policy agreement when you're that torn. Maybe something will come through. What's your view on that? Because on one side, like these forums on the internet can get very, very mean and very nasty. And people could say very, very, they're not usually very civil, or it can devolve into a way where it isn't very civil and have a real like actual discussion where people maybe have a different views. Like we're having right now, we have different views, but we're having a very civil, reasonable discussion with one another. This is the internet, which we would hope we could have, but humans are different. But on the other side, you might not want to take something down that is let's say you have a different view on COVID's origins or something like that. You might feel weird if that got taken down. Does the IFF have a point of view on this of where we should be thinking through on these things? Yeah, we do. One of them is interoperability. One of the things that we need to do is not make there just be one place where all this speech happens so that we are beholden to Mr. Zuckerberg, whatever algorithms he can come up with. And those poor people in the Philippines who get paid to read all the direct online. That's not a good world. A better world is that we have smaller communities where we can have more community control that we can leave and go more easily and with more control. And that's where interoperability comes in. This is why we care about decentralization. One of the reasons we care about it is that this one platform to rule them all really makes it much harder to use a lot of the traditional tools to deal with hatred. I mean, we're never going to get rid of nasty people online, but maybe we can shrink their influence and have them all just talk to each other someplace in some nasty corner of the internet while the rest of us get to go on with our business. So I think that that's one of the strategies. EFF also has a set of things that we promote with, we helped convene a conversation, a worldwide conversation about how platforms should deal with speech content moderation at scale. And we have these things called the Santa Clara Principles. They're process principles, but they're an attempt to try to think about how, if you're a giant platform, you should deal with speech that other people complain of or that you have flagged. And how do you have basically due process, appeal rights? How do you make these decisions transparent so people know why? I don't think you can ever prescribe what people should say and what they can't say, but what you can do is build a process around that speech so that your decisions about whether to keep it up or take it down are fair and reasonable and understandable by the people they're affected. And that takes us a long way. Okay. Interesting. Now, totally random question I have for you, because I know that you're a smart person probably thought about this. Why haven't we figured out how to vote online? Like, is it a tech issue? Is it a privacy issue? Is it a security issue? Like, what's the deal? Like, why can't I just like open my phone or my browser or something and vote for the next president? Oh, I'm so glad you asked this question. The internet is too insecure. It's way too insecure. We have data breaches. We have all sorts of problems on the internet. We have a whole world of people putting in malware, spyware, data breaches. The internet is not secure. So it's like if I had a bot network on my PC at home or something like that, it could vote for me and it could vote in a way I didn't want it to vote for or something like that. Correct. Oh, okay. Or even anywhere along the way. Anywhere along the way. I could change the bits along the way or something like that. Okay. Or at the back end, the internet is not secure enough for something as important as our vote. And the reason it isn't is in part because of the secret ballot. Unlike your bank account, where if somebody takes a lot of money out of it, you're going to notice. Your vote has to be secret. It has to be secret. 
rate reasons. So no right? one will know. Right. There's no way to audit what happens no, and along the way. Yeah. Okay. I mean, and we can do risk limiting audits at the end, but you can't of an individual vote. So the internet is not secure enough for voting. And it, I don't think it's going to be anytime soon. And there's an effort funded by a guy named Bradley Tusk all across the country to introduce internet voting. And I think anybody who cares about security and their vote, and frankly, our country ought to be opposing this. This is a hmm. bad idea. It's dangerous. It's dangerous to our vote. And it's got this kind of it pretends to be tech solutionism, but it's not. We have to be honest. The internet is not yet secure enough for our votes. We would have to compromise our other values like secret ballots, which are tremendously important to stop vote buying and vote selling and intimidation. We don't want to compromise our values. So we need to vote in ways that are a little more old school for now and like work on- mail. Vote by mail or something like that. Vote by mail is a little better. Filling out your ballot and dropping it in a box where it is actually, or taking it to the voting booth itself. And so that you've got a little more security. Harder to change at scale. Harder to have some foreign hacker jumping in on that or something like that. Yeah. And I really, I mean, again, you've got an audience here that I think ought not to be snowed by this idea that internet voting is possible right now. It's not. And it's really dangerous. And there's a well-funded effort by frankly, some tech solutionism people who should know better to try to make this something that we all demand and that we get nationwide. And we need to stop it cold. It's a bad idea. There's so many things I love about the internet. There's so many things in the digital world that are worth celebrating and developing. And if we could take all the money that's being pushed towards internet voting right now and push towards internet security, we might get to a place where we could vote online, but we're not. And it's a bad idea and a waste of resources. And I really, this is my clarion call for any technically sufficient people. If you had a data breach of your data from any place and every single person has, you should know instantly that internet voting is a bad idea and you should oppose it. And Mr. Tusk should stop this effort. Interesting. I haven't really thought of this till now, but there's this confidence in democracy that's very, very important to our society. And once that confidence starts to go below a certain percentage of the society, society completely, I assume, breaks down. And so if you had a data breach or even a perceived data breach in voting, this could massively erode confidence really quickly and we could be living in a very different society or something. Yeah. And there were already attempts after the 2020 election to claim that the voting machines were rigged or that other things were rigged. And I work with a lot of the security people in the election side things, and most of them were not true and easily debunked. If we move to internet voting, it's going to be a lot harder. Yeah, we would never know. I mean, it could be true. And we need to know. Verification and authentication is great. Our local voting systems, we had to get rid of the fully touchscreen digital voting systems to have something that had a paper trail so that we could do audits and recounts. That system isn't perfect, but it doesn't have the same risks that internet voting is. And you're right. Once that trust is gone, it's already being battered, but at least it's being battered in ways that we can demonstrate are not true. We don't want to jump into a world in which we can't demonstrate that the lack of trust is unwarranted. We really can't. We need to hang on to the systems that we can audit, that we can count, and that we can verify, and internet voting in there. All right, a couple of questions on EFF. I know you work on a lot of different things, like controls, encryptions, copyright, data protection laws. Like, 
What is an issue besides for voting that maybe isn't getting a lot of mainstream attention, but it's on your radar? Oh, that's not getting mainstream attention. I mean, we continue to do a lot of work around the private surveillance systems and how they're being accessed by law enforcement. So like a ring camera or something like that. Okay. My colleague Matthew does a lot of work around ring cameras, but this scaring people into putting networked surveillance in their homes and their businesses in a way that makes it easier for law enforcement to do dragnet surveillance is something that I think people are increasingly starting to see and worry about. So how does it work like if there's a bunch of ring cameras in my little neighborhood or something like that? How does that work with law enforcement today? Like, how do they get access? I assume, obviously, with a warrant, they could get access to it, or people give the footage if there's a burglary or something like that in their home. But what's the worry there? Is there a way for them to get access without that? Or Well, for your home cameras, not anymore. For a while, law enforcement was trying to get people to pre-agree to let law enforcement just access the cameras whenever they wanted in these little camera networks through oh, the okay. ring back end. We put a lot of pressure on Ring and they don't do this kind of pre-authorization thing anymore, but they will still come individually. The other area where we've been focused on is that there are business districts that will do a joint camera network and law enforcement is asking for real-time access to that or access without a warrant. So in San Francisco, for instance, there's a business district near Union Square And we found out that during the Black Lives Matter protests and also during the Pride Parade, San Francisco cops got access to that footage and watched all those people who were engaging in their First Amendment rights to protest or to be engaged in the parade without a warrant. And we sued. I don't know enough about San Francisco, but even though I lived there for so long, Aren't there city cameras on the top of these light poles? I mean, like London or something, there's cameras everywhere. They presume they already have cameras or is that not the case? No, they don't have the coverage. They have some, for sure. There's cameras outside police stations and a few other places. Okay, EFF actually, if people are interested, has a little VR game that we put together called Spot the Surveillance, where you look around and you look at where all the surveillance is. But the private cameras, there's a lot more of them. It covers a lot more area. The, the public cameras really don't reach far beyond public spaces. And your worry is not that, hey, if there's a crime, like after the fact, we could go get the evidence. It's more just like real time. It's this real time surveillance where they could come in and maybe watch certain people or do certain things that they shouldn't be doing or something. That's right. I mean, we have a long history in this country of cops spying on their exes or otherwise being bought off by people to do private spying We have a long history of people who are engaged in protest activity being spied on. We find it, the Black Lives Matter stuff is just the most recent one, but you can go back in time. Every time there's been an effort to use public protests to try to make change, there is a sector of the law enforcement that is trying to get access to that information in order to attract people and dissuade them. So we know that our First Amendment right to associate, to protest, to petition for grievances is impacted by law enforcement having access to this information. You know, if you build it, let's say a police officer does something unethical, like tracks an ex-lover or something like that. Like what's the typical punishment? Are they relieved of their post? Is it just a slap on the wrist? What's the typical punishment of something like that? It varies a lot. 
I would say that probably less than 10% of it gets caught at all. Sure, because, you know, he gets caught stalking her or worse. We've seen all sorts of things. We've seen some cops go to jail for that kind of behavior, but mainly it's hard to know. It would be an interesting project to track it, to try to figure out what happens. In general, we don't do a very good job of policing the police. They tend to get away with it or they tend to retire and move to a different- How do you think about like body cameras and stuff? Is that like something you think is good or do you think obviously that also could invade people's privacy quite a bit as well? Like where do you come down on that front? I mean, we're not totally opposed to body cameras, but if you look at the evidence so far, it hasn't nearly been as useful to defense as we thought it would be. They tend to get magically turned off whenever the cops are doing something wrong. They face out. So they're tracking other people. They're not really tracking what the cops do in the same way. Having said that, there are some instances in which body-worn cameras have been helpful. But I think that if you look at the dream that body-worn cameras would result in the police not violating people's rights as much hasn't been borne out by the evidence so far. And I think there's real reasons to look at that. One is that Again, the police probably need to have more limited times that they could turn it off. I mean, I get if you're going to go to the bathroom as a cop, you want the camera off, but they seem to be able to turn them off whenever it's convenient. Access to that information needs to be given to the defense much sooner or to the people who need the information much sooner. We've often seen that cops will look at the footage first and then come up with their story so that they can match what the camera says. So it's ended up being something that helps the cops cover up their bad behavior in a lot of situations. So it needs to have, if we're going to keep on this role with body-worn cameras, we need to really shore up the processes around it so that it actually ends up being useful to somebody other than the cops. I don't think anybody thought that body-worn cameras are the kind of thing that cops need. It's what the rest of us need to try to have more accountability from the cops. And I don't think they've lived up to the hype. Okay. I know there's an interesting quote where you said, we probably can't future-proof technology. We need to future-proof society. Can you unpack that a bit for me? Well, I mean, I think what I'm trying to get at in that is that a lot of times people think technology can solve problems that are really about people. And technology is wonderful. I love technology. I work for the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I want all the gadgets. But it can't solve the problem of evil in the heart of mankind. That problem predates technology. Technology gets used by bad people and bad people will bad people, I'm kind of oversimplifying, but bad ideas and dangerous things are going to exist one way or another. I think we also need to focus our energy, not just on building better tech, but on educating and supporting people so that these dangerous ideas aren't so attractive anymore. So they know the difference between a truth and a lie, so that they know who to trust with their information sources, so that they have a moral grounding to know right and wrong. I think that sometimes in tech, we like to think that tech can solve all the problems, but tech can't solve the problems that are human problems. Humans have to solve the problem. In this world that we're moving to where we're just going to see better and better and more deep fakes, like how do we do that in society? Because it does seem like it could really play with how we think about it. Is it, okay, every time you see something, you just need to take a breath and think that it might not be true. And then of course, it causes you to doubt the things that are true. Or I'd be interested in your thoughts on like where we go as a society with all this. Well, I think you're right about the take a breath thing. I mean, this problem that people might be vulnerable to fake things is, is not a digital problem. I mean, Orson Welles and the War of the Worlds 
with each new technology, people need to be able to stop and take a breath and have sources that help tell them whether things are true or not. And Snopes has been a tremendous usefulness for me, at least with my own father, when he sends me these things and I can use Snopes to try to do that. Now, there are things Snopes doesn't do as well as other things, but I Sorry, think that- What's Snopes? Oh, Snopes is a website that talks about things, whether urban myths are true or not. Ah, uh, got it. Okay. And they're just one of them, but they were kind of the oldest and probably the most famous of them. But there's just a place where you can go and you can put in your urban myth and it'll tell you whether it's true or not. And they're researched and they tell you why. And okay. Wikipedia is another place where people can go to get information that is a little more trustworthy, but people have to learn. We all have to learn. We all know in the real world that when something smells fishy, whether you should believe it right or not, we all learn those things. As the digital world gets developed, we need to develop those same instincts online. I mean, the good news is if you look at the data, Pew does some research on this, other people do some research on this, like the people who fall for lies online, they're not the younger people who've grown up and who have kind of a little more digital savvy. Frankly, it's the people who are closer to my age and older who fall for those kinds. And those are the people also watching TV news, which may have its own sensationalism that's out there. It's good news, bad news. But the good news is the kids are all right. And the kids are learning the kinds of instincts online that you and I learned about TV or radio, or that earlier generations learned about the yellow broadsheets, the yellow papers that would have the kind of national inquirer of their day. We all learn as we get deeper into technology to be able to tell, to have good clues for whether something's true or not. I think deep fakes is going to be one of those things. I think the idea that here's a picture, it must be true. Already, I don't think the kids believe that. And I don't think a lot of adults do either. And it's going to, that I think will, I'm not sure it will totally take care of itself, but that will get better as humans get better. But that's where our attention has to be. How do we teach literacy in this digital world to people? How do we teach them the difference? And again, it's not just kids. I really think right now we got to teach adults the difference far more. Now, a couple of personal questions before we go. I read somewhere that when you were on Colbert, you sent some sort of silly hat that you ended up wearing to the interview and then had it memorialized on the EFF offices. What's the story behind this hat? (laughs) When I went on the Colbert show, they wanted to go on the internet. So Stephen and I went on the internet. They put like a cereal box with a viewfinder on it. The prop (laughs) department made this crazy thing. We put them on our heads. And then we had the green screen behind him and we went, it's really fun if you look at it, like around the internet together. (laughs) Yeah, it was really fun. And they were so kind. They sent it to me afterwards so that we do still have it as a place of honor in the EFF, the fun hat that I got to do with Stephen Colbert. That's really funny. And then I also heard that you give staffers like bottles of whiskey when they do their first public records requests. Yes. Why do you do, are you just like a big whiskey fan or why whiskey out of all the things? Well, so first of all, they're airplane bottles of whiskey. They're the little ones. Do you make them drink it right there? No, no, no. In fact, most people keep them, (laughs) but I'm a whiskey drinker myself. And for my birthday one year, the EFFers decorated my office by hanging little airplane bottles of whiskey from the ceiling of my office on ribbons. So I came in on my birthday and my office was full of hanging airplane whiskey bottles. I think it was Maker's (laughs) Mark. 
which was lovely and very sweet. And then I had. And anytime you're having a bad day, you just reach up and just. Yeah. Uh, bring I had 50 <laughs> some bottles of Maker's Mark. And so at EFF, we really believe in transparency and open records. And we were trying to think of ways to convince a broader swath of the staff and the interns to file Public Records Act and be part of government transparency. And so I offered one Maker's Mark bottle to anybody who did their first one, and it's just caught on. So now any intern staffer who files a FOIA request or public records ask request for their first one, they get a little bottle from me. Now, not everybody's whiskey drinkers. So I've got a selection now. And then we've had a few people who are non-drinkers. I actually brought a malt for somebody. Okay, nice. I brought a smoothie for somebody. So <laughs> it's the drink of your choice. It doesn't have to be whiskey, but historically it was those 50 whiskey bottles that were the starter for it. I actually see this because like this transparency, obviously there's a saying in vino veritas. So I could see how we, this, this makes a lot of sense, actually. We get to the truth through the whiskey. Right. Yes. Yeah. All right. Last question. We ask all of our guests, what conventional wisdom or advice do you think is generally bad advice? I think if you have nothing to hide, you've got nothing to fear if you've got nothing to hide, I believe. This is the Eric Schmidt has a famous quote like that, yes. actually. Yeah. I think that that's really bad advice. I think that all of us should stand up for our right to privacy, our right to have a private conversation, our right to move around without being tracked online. And even if you think you don't have someone to hide, somebody who you talk to or interact with probably does. Privacy is a team sport. So I think that reducing your interest in privacy to whether you've done something wrong or think you have something to hide is really misunderstanding the right and is really dangerous for you and people you love. I mean, we all have something to hide, not to say that we're doing something evil or bad, but we all have things we don't want the whole world knowing about. Or I might not want all the world knowing about all the nicknames I give my wife or something like that, or just different things or what I have for breakfast or whatever it might be. So we all have those things, I presume. There was like the Justin TV where like they film like every day, every single part of their life. But most people, like they don't want like all of their life online. That's right. And even if at the moment that you're making that information available, you think there's no risk, this can change over time. And we've seen this. We've seen changes in governmental interest. We're in the middle of one now with reproductive freedom, where talking to your friend about whether you've missed your period might have been something that you had nothing to hide about a while ago. Now in some states, it could be a very dangerous conversation to have. So even moving forward, like things can change. And Having basic privacy and basic control over who knows where you go and who you talk to and what you say is important. And it's important even if you don't think you're currently at risk. There are certainly people who have a lot of control and power in our society who probably could live in front of a camera all the time. I'm not sure why they- Some of them have to because they're just very public officials or something, right? If they want to, but I just I think that that's not the standard we want to have. People don't say that about free speech. People don't say, I don't care about free speech because I don't want to stand up on a corner and shout my views. We all understand that free speech ultimately protects us all. We need to have the same understanding about privacy. Okay, this is great. Sydney Cohen, thank you so much for being with us on World of Das. Now, I noticed you're not on Twitter, which I guess is on brand. Where can people follow you on the interwebs? Well, EFF. Okay, just as EFF. I tell people, 
You're I tweet intertwined. all the time. I just yeah, tweet yeah. as EFF. EFF. Okay. That's the best place to find me. Follow EFF. We're online. We're on all the socials. And if I have something to say, that's where you'll see it. Awesome. Well, I appreciate it. Oh, you. and one more thing. Gosh, I forgot. We also have our own podcast. We have a oh, podcast right. called okay, there we go. Good. How to Fix the Internet. Where That's a great name for a podcast. Each week, we take on one issue and we ask people to envision what the world would look like if we got it right. So instead uh, of wallowing, cool. which we all do in all yes. of the problems that we have on the internet right now, we really want to use the podcast to highlight a positive view that we can get there. You can't build a better world unless you can envision it. And we want the podcast to be featuring people who are beginning to build visions of a better world and talk with them about what that better world looks like. So hopefully it's uplifting. Amazing. We need more of that. Inspiring. Yeah. So that's the other place where you can hear me. I'm one of the co-hosts of it. And it's really, I think, an important conversation for us, for those of us who love technology to be having, which is the ability to envision what it looks like if we get it right. Well, this has been great. I know we agree on some things. Sometimes we disagree, but when at least when we disagree, we do it in a very pleasant way where we can have a real conversation. So I really appreciate you coming on on World of DAS and being a guest. Thank you so much. Thank you for this conversation. I agree with you. It's nice to be able to talk thoughtfully about things, even when we disagree. And it feels like it's rare sometimes. So thank you. Absolutely. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed the show, consider rating this podcast and leaving a review. For more World of DAS, and DAS is D-A-A-S, you can subscribe on Spotify or Apple Podcasts or anywhere you get your podcasts. And also check out YouTube for videos. You can find me at Twitter at at Oren, that's A-U-R-E-N, Oren, and we'd love to hear from you.